all businesses can can be bloated and you just need someone to cut through and they essentially they use me as that tool to cut through to set targets for the managers and susie sat me down and she said jay i know this is your bookshop but you need to tell us what you want is this a vanity project for you or do you want us to keep making money you learn pretty quickly how to manage authors, I think. They can be very demanding, but I think it's important to understand as they may have spent four years producing this one thing and when it's not at the front of your shop and they're upset, that's a rational response. the booksellers podcast. I'm Jay Chin Dusting and I'm from the Mary Martin Bookshops and I'm coming to you from Wurundjeri country. Unfortunately we haven't got Mark with us today. He's recovering from the big move that readings in Hawthorne have had to do on Glen Ferry Road. If you've got a chance to go down that way they've moved about six shops up the road into a glorious emerald green building. You can't miss it. Pop in and say hello to them. But I do have with me Robbie Egan CEO of Book People, formerly known as the Australian Booksellers Association. Welcome to the Booksellers Podcast, Robbie. Thanks, Jay. Nice to be here. Robbie, maybe we can start by you introducing yourself and maybe tell the listeners a little bit about your experience and background. Sure. I got into bookselling in my mid-20s through necessity, like the exigencies of life push you towards something. I had a pregnant girlfriend. We'd been living in, in London having an enormously fun time, and suddenly I was going to be a father. My partner was from New Zealand and didn't want to have a baby in London and didn't want to go back to New Zealand. So I said, well, I'm from Melbourne and I think you'll like it. Why don't we try that? And I did the worst jobs known to humanity for a long time. And uh, somebody mentioned that there was a job going at a Dimmocks in Melbourne Central. Somehow, through a cover letter with some element of charm, they gave me a chance and gave me a job. And most of their hires were young people. But I met a whole bunch of booksellers and probably foremost in my mind is still a good friend of mine, Alison Huber, who works at Readings in Melbourne as the the head buyer there. So how old were you at this stage? About 27. And it was as soon as I thought I want to work in a bookshop, it was like this dream that I had to get a job. Anyway, once I got there, I realised I was quite good at it. I don't think I'm the world's greatest bookseller, but I really loved doing it. And the first experience that really hooked me in forever was Don DeLillo's book, Underworld, was being released. A giant hardback tome. I was a DeLillo fan. I'd read most of his novels. Some are terrible, I must say, but I, I slogged through the bad ones and I, I loved the good ones. Anyway, I just knew this book was going to be huge. Came out and we'd ordered something like eight copies. And I, I wasn't particularly happy with that, but said this is going to be something. Then the reviews started to come out and we had to go and pinch from other Dimmicks copies of this beautiful hardback book because we didn't order enough. And I, it made me realise that I did have some acumen in this area. And then I ended up working in a bunch of bookshops from Dimmicks Auckland when we took our kids to New Zealand to be with uh, my partner's family. I worked at Tim's Bookshop in Kew. Tim was great. In the end, I was really running his business and went to him to say, I need to be paid. You know, I've got a kid and a mortgage. This is brutal. I'd put together a three-page proposal and a dollar amount that I thought I was worth, and he said, I can't afford it. He wasn't nasty about it. You know, we agreed that it wasn't going to happen. So I went to readings in Carlton with my resume. I happened to know the manager. I didn't realise I did. It was from a sales rep job I'd had way, way back in you know the distant past. And uh, he said, look, I'll call you. And months later, he called and I started working upstairs at Readings Carlton, uh, receiving and returns. Nothing to do with selling books. I was just a process worker in the background. But pretty quickly, Mark got to know I was both a fairly confident personality. We had our clashes and arguments. We built up great respect for each other. And I ascended a corporate ladder in a sense, but within one small business and uh, ended up working very closely with Mark for, well, it was 14 years in the end. So I have to ask this question. You asked Tim for, uh, you know, X amount of dollars to manage his bookshop. He couldn't afford it. You went over to Readings to work as a process worker. 
So he was paying you higher than what teams could afford as a manager? In an hourly rate sense, yes. There were nights involved as well. Back in the day, we received sometimes till 11 at night. You just worked through. There was a, a crossover shift in the afternoon. So penalty rates were part of it. It was strategic. I needed to create a career out of something that I loved and I couldn't see creating a career out of a very small shop in the suburbs. So I went to what I thought was the biggest and, you know, I don't like to say the best. You're all the best. But uh, Readings was a fantastic bookshop. There, What they had back then was probably five stores. I thought there was enough heft in that company for me to learn everything. And in the end, I did probably every single job you can do in a bookshop. And uh, I, I made my way by saying yes to everything. That's a good motto in life, I reckon. Just say yes. So Mark, in fact, had discussed in episode two about how he was concerned, like we all are, about career pathways for fantastic people within our stores. And that was one motivation for building um, bigger and bigger. And obviously it worked and attracted the best uh, as, as he has in you. So what was your final position in readings? They ended up calling me operations manager, which was a position created because I think Mark just wanted someone to to look after the numbers and, and dig a bit deeper. And I think, I guess he was probably, in the dim distance, he saw a retirement or a change or family handover, some succession thing. And I, I, I like to think I helped him get to that position. I fo- focused very hard on stock turn, returns rates, age stock, just cleaning up, exceptional bookseller, but not a very good inventory manager. And that sounds harsh criticism. I'm just being clear about it. Um, I think all businesses can, can be bloated and you just need someone to cut through. And they essentially they use me as that tool to cut through, to set targets for the managers, not binding targets where they lost their jobs, but this is where I need you to get to. And um, I found I really enjoyed that. So I also decided I needed even better business skills. I was very intuitive, but I didn't quite know what I was doing sometimes. So I um, I did an MBA uh, program at RMIT University. It was a really effective thing in, I think, just rounding me as a person, like an arts degree. An MBA can give you, I guess, the power to never have the wool pulled over your eyes when you're sitting in a bar sometime. Robbie, this is exactly why I wanted you, because I've realised upon listening to episodes one and two that Mark and I had used a few acronyms and uh, with assumptions that people would understand. So for the benefit of the listeners, I'll just say that today's episode, we will get a little bit more technical. I, I wanted Robbie here to explain the ABCs of book selling uh, to myself. I-, I want to ask him the questions that you know I wanted to ask someone six years ago, and perhaps I still don't know the answers now. And I think Robbie is absolutely the perfect person to do it, not only because of his track record and um, background, but because he is, you know, he comes from a voice of authority as the uh, CEO of um, Booksellers Association. So if you don't mind me completely picking your brains, Robbie. No, let's do it. Okay, so a book person comes to you and says, and I'm sure you've had a hundred, you know, many, many approaches because I've seen the number of applications that come through the ABA, just um, just to be, again, completely transparent, I am um, a member of the management committee on the um, book people, otherwise known as ABA. I'm going to be using those um, that terminology uh, interchangeably because I still haven't quite got into the habit of calling the Australian Booksellers Association ABA book people at the moment, which is their current brand. So we see many applications come in, a lot of them because they want a mentor as to how to open a bookshop. What is your first advice to them? Uh, can I preface it by saying it's one of the tasks that the association needs to do is to rewrite our book on how to open a bookshop. So if someone comes to me, it's very simple. I say, are you aware of how much it costs? Because a bookshop isn't a simple open the doors and they will come. You need the, the wallpaper. The product has to be there. And before you have any product and any credit with any of the publishers or suppliers, you need rent, you're going to pay outgoings, you're going to have to pay staff, you're going to have to build a staff. It's a very expensive exercise. So I start with the how deep are your pockets? And it's 
sounds a bit blunt, but I think that's the really first step. Can you afford to open a bookshop? If you can, then you move on very quickly and you start to discuss. Location is absolutely vital. You need foot traffic. So have you stood in the street and observed people walking up and down? That's the only way you're going to open a bookshop is to have foot, foot traffic come by. I assume we're not talking about an online only play. We're talking about opening a physical shop. So it's, it's foot traffic and it's location. Does it have large window space? This, it's very hard to you know, be alluring without window space and lots of books faced out. What's the configuration of the shop like? What's the square meterage? How much do you want to spend on stock? Then you work out a formula for that. Do you know that your shelves need to be slightly declined, so flow down to the back slightly? I think readings always did four degrees. And when I tell people, have your your shelves sloping slightly and four degrees is a good idea, they're really like, oh my God, I never thought of that. Whereas that's a very simple thing. The, the books are going to fall forward if you face them out. So you, you've got to think through a whole bunch of weird things like that. You've got to make decisions on shelf height. You've got to make decisions on whether you want people to see right through the shop or whether you want tall shelves and how are you going to get sight lines so your staff can see where people are in the shop. It's sort of never ending. So I, I would suggest to people that you find a mentor, or you come to book people or you come to a board member by you know negotiation through me, really, and you start to build up a picture of what they really did when they opened their bookshop, because it's very hard to conceive of all that stuff, isn't it? Sure is. I mean, I was the, the only way I could have done it was to um, to buy into an existing shop with staff who came with the bookshop, who were completely experienced and completely running the bookshop already. That's a different question, isn't it? And then it's really a, you've got to look at the books and what there are ratios that are really important. Stock turn, I've talked about gross margin return on inventory investment. Okay, we're going to have to ask you to explain what all those are in a little while. But before that, the one of the first questions I had and a lot of people ask me is, where do the books come from? Yeah, that's right. So when someone joins us, we send out a pack that kind of explains that stuff. And yes, it's a it's an odd system we have without a wholesaler. I'm very envious that the UK and the US have a wholesaler that can just get books to them really quickly. What do we have? Three sheds plus Scholastic plus so many other small, you know, if you if you want to be interesting, you need to know who books at Manic are. You need to know Sonia, for example, who does all those wacky art books from Europe. And it's a strange network, isn't it? So the fundamental basics are that this is a relationship industry and you might be dealing with global behemoths and find out, oh, I, I see. So ADS is owned by Hachette. The Mossman facility for Harper Education is owned by Harper. UBD is owned by Penguin Random House. And they, when those things become clear, they kind of make more sense but you're never dealing with a global giant. You're dealing with a sales rep. And if you can work well with that individual from each publisher or whoever, at whatever agencies they represent, that's the key to getting an understanding in the business. Okay, I'm going to tear it down, uh, Jess, again, for the benefit of those who have got no idea who ADS and UBD and Penguin and all that are. I'm just going to tear it down a little bit uh, simpler. So at the end of the day, you've got your, well, at the start of your day, you've got your authors. Uh, who are signed up to your publishers. And again, you know, there are many, many publishers, some international behemoths, as um, Robbie mentioned, some very small publishers. And some of these publishers own a distributing company, which in fact looks after other publishers. So there are the distributors, which are like United. What does UBD stand for? United Books Distributors. And ADS, which is Alliance. And the other large one is Harper Entertainment distribution services. So the distributors basically are the ones responsible for bringing those books to your bookshops um, and for also looking after the invoices uh, on behalf of the publishers. That's essentially it. There are those that fall outside, uh, a lot that fall outside of those sheds, but the vast majority would be those three distributors. I would, you know, these are rough figures, but UBD would be a good 50%. I would say, or more of the market, and they operate out of Scoresby in Melbourne, and the other two would make up a chunk of the other 50%, and they are out of uh, outside Sydney. So that gives you a sense of, well, maybe unnecessarily complicated, 
system, but I suppose it's gone that way historically. Is that is that how it started, Robbie? Um, in my mind, it's always been so. Yeah. So you were referring to the UK system where they have a single wholesaler? Yeah. So the UK, they had two, Gardner's and Bertram's. They're wholesalers, not distributors. So they buy and have books and they sell them on. All bookshops essentially are hooked into Gardner's now. Bertram's collapsed and uh, they order direct from them and it's very quick and it's easy, but they're lower discounts than if they ordered direct from the publisher because they're an intermediary that needs to make their cut. And it's the same in the US with Ingram's. There used to be uh, Baker and Taylor. Baker and Taylor have folded. So there's only one there. And it's the same thing. You can get a book quickly and with a pretty good assurance, if you order from the wholesaler, it'll be slower from the publisher, better margins. So they have decisions to make in those two countries, which are you know similar markets to ours, but they, they've got that extra layer where they can go for margin if they can wait, or they can expedite the order and they can lose a bit of margin. It it changed the way we think about running our bookshops. It, it does, actually. I mean, as Red Fun says, it, it is a game, and uh, it's a game that you can only play if you know the rules and the background. So this is, um, I'm sure, incredibly useful to everyone. Again, let me just take it back, because we are referring to margins. An author comes along and is snapped up, and obviously, you know, it's horses for courses as to who the publisher is and who the author is. But let's say we have a book which sells for $32.99 upon first release, $33 in Australia, which includes 10% GST. What percentage of that is the author's cut generally? Uh, my royalties are about 10%. Royalties are about 10%. And then the margin to bookshops uh, wavers between 40 to 55%. Even lower for smaller bookshops. Sometimes I'm, I'm astonished by what's offered to people starting out. It can be in the mid-30s, and that would be, that's tricky. Something really important to understand in book selling is you have to sell a book three times. If you sell a book once, you've got your 40 to 50%. Then you sell it again, you're getting up towards 100%. But if you sell it a third time, you're making money, if that makes sense. Now, this is a very simple way of explaining it, but when someone explained that to me, it was a light bulb moment, you know, when I first started doing it. Yeah. So 10% to the author. Often that is, if they get an advance, that goes towards paying off the advance, so to speak. They only get the royalty once the 5000 whatever it is, is, is eaten up, so to speak. So when you think of 10%, you're getting $3 a book. And in Australia, selling, as you know, 2,000 copies of a book's not bad. It's it's not a living. It can take someone years to write a book. So it's a it's an interesting industry where we're at the acute end at the where the art meets the commerce and we have to turn over their product, their commodity, but it's their complete you know, their whole life has gone into this thing. And we have yeah, to be yeah. somewhat mercenary and decide whether we're going to do it or not. It's yeah, sometimes I really struggle with it to be honest. It is, it is, as I was saying to Mark in one of the earlier episodes, I mean, that was also where I struggled coming from a not-for-profit um, background and trying to work through the retail and commercial end of it. And the other difficulty we have as book, you know, especially independent bookshops, is the expectation of the customers that we are also a community centre. And it's quite difficult to straddle that line between, you know, giving to the community but also trying to make sure that the bookshop is profitable enough to look after your your expenses plus your own needs, really. By the time I got to management, I was acutely aware of the responsibility of not just making your own salary or making the owner a profit, but you've got, you know, however many people from five to 160 staff, depending on the size of your bookshop business, who all rely on your business to be paid, to put their money back into the economy, et cetera, et cetera. It's actually, it, it must weigh heavy, Jay. It, it is a responsibility. Yeah. But you're smiling. You can't see this on the podcast, but Jay is smiling. <laughs> she's she's enjoying books. It's a, no, it is a responsibility, of course. And, you know, it is still, it's also a privilege. Let's go back to a bit of uh, the technicalities. 
10% for the author. Now we're looking at between 30 to 40% for the publisher, about, you know, 30 to 50%, whatever, for the bookshop. That, that's the sort of margins we're looking at. What are the expectations then of a publisher for a bookshop to gift them, for want of a better word, better margins? It's, I mean, now you're talking business. I guess it's a volume game. So it's really sales dependent. If you have a, they have bands essentially, and if you can achieve X sales a year, you you will get a higher discount, a base rate. It's not exactly only a base rate. We'll get to buying groups later. But as you know, you can speak to your sales rep on the phone or when they're in the shop and say, I want to sell a lot of this book. I want more discount. And this is what I will do. And what you might do would be put it in your newsletter, do some social media posting, tell your staff it's the book of the month, whatever designs you have on it. And you can often get a very good discount by doing that. At, you know, at the most simplistic level, that's that happens probably every day in the book industry. And that I really enjoy that. That's sort of the art of cutting a deal and following through on what you say you're going to do. And you learn by doing that and you have failures. You back a book and nothing happens and no one can work out why. And then a book that you think is nothing sells, you know, 100,000. It is it's an art industry. It's it's um and it's an interesting one because it covers all of manufacturing, design, the creative impetus to write a fiction, for example, or be a researcher who writes a serious history book. It, it's it, there's such breadth in the industry. I think that's why it's so fascinating. In the end, it's volume. You need to sell X amount of books to keep moving up the bands and get extra discount. And for the small bookshop owners listening to us today, of which I include myself, that there is light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, we know that it's limiting how many books you can bring into a bookshop, but of course, then there are the buying groups, which we will talk about later on. Um, Robbie, you mentioned stock turnover. What do you mean by that? Essentially, it's a measurement of how many times you sell a unit. It's your average inventory divided by your sales, essentially. So if your stock turn is four, and you should, if you're doing a stock turn, you take a reading, say, every week, at the end of every week. So there's a first reading at the start of the year and a 53rd reading at the end of the year. That would be ideal. That really tells you what your stock averages are. So you you're understanding what happens throughout the year and then you should be able to measure month by month at that number. And stock turn of four is what I think is acceptable. And if you're turning over under four, that you're getting into the territory I talked about that you have to sell a book three times to make any money, you really need to push for five. If you can turn over your stock five times, you're in pretty reasonable shape, I think. So that using a formula like that and average inventories smooths it all out so that there are several books where you might sell 50 to 500 and the rest of them, you may sell one or two or none. And there's a huge chunk of books which just go through a a washing machine, like a tumbler where they come in and they go back out to publishers. I suppose we should talk about returns at some point. So it's not just sales, it's dealing with your inventory. So say you have books that are two to three years old in your shop. You didn't return them in time, whatever the reason is. That money is gone. It's a sunk cost, so to speak. You should set fire to that stock. You should sell it for $5 or $2 or give it to the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence for free to sell, to make money, to help people with material aid. that That is dead to you. It's very hard to think of books as that because we love them and they're so important. But it's very rare that you go and find a three or four-year-old book and sell it. I'm just going to take a step back again. In principle, this is uh, new bookshops or bookshops that sell new books rather than secondhand books, obviously. A lot of the books that we bring in come in on a sale or return, S-O-R, so in other words, you sell them or you can return them, but you have to return them within a certain window. And that's how you control your stock. Some of the books come in as firm sale and you need to recognize basically that that means you've bought them and you've committed to those books, uh, but you, you, can't, you cannot return those books. Uh, other books come in on consignment, which basically usually come in uh, from self-published uh, authors. 
who are happy for you to you know put their, their books on the shelf but you don't pay them until the books are sold so you keep them for six months um, and then return all the books that you haven't sold to them and pay the books that you sold so those are the general that's essentially it most of the industry is sale or return if someone's listening who wants to open a bookshop and has no idea essentially you have to keep a book for three months usually and then from three to 12 months you can send it back obviously it has to be in saleable condition so you do get stuck with books that, that you know have been thumbed through many times by customers or someone's dropped there's nothing you can do about that that is a cost of business and they they probably are part of the markdown process we didn't mark down at readings which is interesting for a long time and to get the numbers i was talking about under control i just created a table of markdown stock and i think it broke mark a little bit i don't think he enjoyed that but in the end it worked and, and we didn't have to really have the table so much it was just a you know it was trying to expedite a, a process firm sale is different that's not that common it's a long time since i've been a book buyer but i think you wouldn't say much of the industry sells firm sale would they no not much at all it's usually it's for backlist books someone who's wondering about opening a bookshop essentially this is a monthly new release industry every month new books come out from all the publishers and month by month they go into the cycle of what is returnable at some point so you've got to track constantly and you need to sell enough and return enough to keep your shop looking okay it's very easy to get bloated i'm wondering when you started was there a period where you didn't realise that you had to continually do returns or were your staff able to just keep the ship sailing for you? No, it was really quite harsh because I came into the bookshop with, you know, I was, again, for the benefit of the listeners who didn't know, I'm a, a professor of medical research. So my reading was quite esoteric, actually. I came in and there were tables, which are the humour tables, which had Kim Kardashian um, and <laughs> and that sort. And I remember saying to the staff, yeah, I don't think we'd be stocking those sort of books. And Susie, who was my most experienced uh, bookseller, she's still with me, sat me down and she said, and these were the words that I've never forgotten, Jay, I know this is your bookshop, but you need to tell us what you want. Is this a vanity project for you or do you want us to keep making money? Uh, and since then, I've always actually been very, you know, very alert whenever Susie sits me down and goes, Jay, I know this is your bookshop, but, and I always, always listen to her. Um, that is music to my ears. I guess it harkens back to you asked me, what would you tell someone who came to ask what to do? Think about the money first. What, what do you want out of this? If you don't care about money, that's okay. It's easy to lose a lot of money in a bookshop. It's one of those jokes. How do you make half a million dollars, you know, spend a million starting a bookshop? The way I always looked at it was from the angle of don't be a snob. Don't judge what people are reading. They're buying books off you. They're your customers. It's, you know, if they're reading, I don't read romance. I think it's probably really silly, but it's fine by me. I, I want people reading whatever it is. Very, very, very quickly come to that, not just for the money, but because of the fact that it is a, you know, it is it could be a lost art reading. And anything that gets young people reading, old people reading again. Yeah. In any era, any time, there was a golden age where everyone read seriously. You know, it's not true. Tabloid journalism, comics, you name it. It's all, we've always read lots of entertaining rubbish and, you know, pot boilers and who cares? It's... Oh, Charles Dickens was a tabloid storyteller, wasn't he? Yeah, old-fashioned pamphleteer. He sold pamphlets which were chapters, essentially, and that's why he f you know, finishes every chapter as a, as a perfectly contained unit because he had to sell the bloody things. And it's a, it's a great lesson. Robbie, before we move on to the book people and how you got that very that's important right. role, two topics I wanted to talk about with you in particular, and that is um, author care and how, you know, as a bookseller, you approach the author care issue. And I asked that because there is a responsibility for booksellers, I guess, in bookshops to promote their work, then it does come at an expense. What is your view on author care? Well, <clears throat> my starting point for getting into the industry w was that I'm all about the book. Like, I just love books. I love reading. I love literature. I love you know, popular. I love serious history, etc. 
And it's easy to forget that behind that is a person. And sometimes authors are rude. Sometimes they're charming. Sometimes they're introverted. Sometimes they're, you know, bombastic. It, it's a person behind the, the unit that we're shifting. And it, the beautiful thing about book selling is you don't really think of them as units. You know, we, we, we love the product. Um, it's why we're not selling shoes or petrol or, you know, this is the one thing that I really want to sell. You, you learn pretty quickly how to manage authors, I think, and you just have to accept that they're all really different and they can be very demanding. But I think it's important to understand, as I was talking about earlier, they may have spent four years of their life producing this one thing and that it's out into the world and when it's not at the front of your shop and they're upset, that's a rational response. But you, you can't cater to everyone. You can't stock every book. You can't sell every book. It's, it's an actual physical impossibility, let alone <laughs> you may not want to. It is heartbreaking though, isn't it? As, you know, especially for the small bookshops out in you know, localities when all the local authors come forward and you want to help them. And from their point of view, you know, all they're asking is for, you know, to plonk their book on your shelves. And it's a such, yeah. it, it is a very difficult no. Yeah, well, consignment books are the hardest because often they're the editorial, the, the aesthetic design is a little bit lacking and there's going to be no media, there'll be no buzz. We are in trouble if we don't do what we can to support authors because the only reason we exist is to sell books. But really, it's Australian writing that is the most important and I think we're, we are in a bit of a golden age. I mean, people, there are a lot of books coming out of high quality by Australian writers. That's a very, very positive thing. The problem then is it's even harder to sell lots of them. So that we're diluting by, by, by our excellence. It's a bit of a conundrum, isn't it? The only thing I would say just to finish off on this little section is we should make clear that although books are usually uh, on, a, on sale or return rates, it does tie up the cash flow of the bookseller in a big way. We've got to bring them in in the first place, pay for them before we can return them and get the money back in the next cycle. So I just wanted to make that little bit clear. That's a really good point. Um, in a very small bookshop, you've still got $150,000, $200,000 tied up at any time. And that's not insignificant. And of course, from the author's perspective, or from say a small publisher perspective, their job is to only sell those books where our job is to convert the whole of publishing, the whole of global publishing into a nice bookshop for our community. And that's that's harder than, you know, it seems easy, but that's the trick of it. No, it's a, it's a curation skill. The only other topic I wanted to mention is staff care. Once you hit management or ownership, that is, gee, that's close to the most important thing. If you step back, the first thing a business must do is survive. But once a business survives financially, it can take care of all the other things. So if your business is extant and it, it brings in more money than it spends, staff is probably the next most important thing. I've learned a lot of lessons over the years. I am a very good advocate for myself. I've always, I was taught by my parents to not put up with bullies. And that extended to advocating for myself for either a position in terms of we should back this book or I should I deserve more money or whatever it might be. So I, I always talk to staff about come and talk to me and tell me your idea, tell me what you're worth. Um, and booksellers can be introverted often um, and very intelligent. They're middle class usually. They're well read, they're educated and they, I think their personality types are not necessarily self-advocating. And that's a trick because it means you have to sometimes divine your staff's needs from their moods or, you know, their actions at work. And that can be tricky, you know, different types of workplaces. I worked in kitchens when I was young as a cook, and there is never any doubt what a chef is thinking. They yell it at you repeatedly all day. 
and th there's clarity. But in a bookshop, there's not so much clarity. It's kind of a, it's a quieter, more reflective kind of business. And, you know, you need dialogue and you need to tease it out. One of the things I implemented, I used to be an executive director of the Baker Heart Research Institute, where we had 700 to 800 people. And we were very clear as to the lines of management and who was responsible for what. But one of the things we did annually was staff appraisals. And this was something I implemented in the bookshop as soon as I started. We do it once a year. We have a time where, in fact, we have a discussion. We do it outside of the bookshop, so we're not interrupted by what's going on in the bookshop. And it's 100% a communication tool for them to tell me what they think, what they're happy about, what they're not happy about, and for me to tell them what my expectations are. And it's a two-way conversation. It's Chatham House rules. It doesn't go out of that conversation. And we've, I found it incredibly useful because it basically there's no simmering unspoken communication because the opportunity has been there for both of us to speak and we don't take it back into the bookshop generally. So that has been very useful, small thing, but a useful thing, I think. That's exactly how it should be managed, really. Um, my preference was always that there was a never-ending dialogue. People always called you. And I had some managers when I was at Readings who would call me daily and some who needed no care that I could divine. But, you know, I, I used to I used to meet with the managers every month when I was just the manager of the Carlton shop. I started appraisals. Um, and the reason I didn't do them annually, I did a few, was that it was incredibly traumatic for the staff. Unless you feel fully empowered as a staff member, it, that's quite scary to be sat down and ha have your performance analysed by your boss. So, The first time I did it at the Mary Martin, I remember staff were a little bit stressed with it because they'd never done it before. And the word appraisal, I think, is a, it's a, probably a misnomer in terms of how we do it. Because it's a small bookshop. I mean, I don't need to do staff appraisals as such as opposed to, you know, a 700 institution. But over the years, it's 30 minute to an hour conversation both ways. So they tell me what they find about me really difficult as well, which is always helpful and very humbling. But you need to go in with good faith on both sides. Yes. Let's move into the, your current role, Robbie. Could you tell us what your day-to-day -day is like, how you, how you got into that role in the first place and why you decided to, to move that way? So I think I was thinking about changing jobs. And I was wondering, why am I not deriving the enjoyment out of this that I used to? So I went and saw a careers psychologist and I think I had six appointments given homework. I had to write a lot of self-reflective stuff about myself. So this was a midlife crisis, really, Robbie? I guess so. But yeah, I went and got a motorbike, which is one of them. My father died. And, and uh, I also went to see a, a psychiatrist, which is not something I've really done in life, but I was very flat when my father died, you know, it's just one of those moments in life. Um, and that was very helpful too. I had 10 sessions with a, a man that, you know, I went to every week and spent an hour talking about fears and ambition and life and all sorts of stuff. It was, it was brilliant, to be honest. Um, not to put too heavy an emphasis on it, but I think therapy is actually quite helpful. I was pretty cynical about it. <laughs> My 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 partner pushed me to do it. <laughs> She's a therapist herself, and I wasn't having her um, analyze me. Sometimes just hearing yourself say certain things out loud is the most uh, most enlightening thing, I think. And liberating your own things that you've been you know lodging in your chest as something tight and and uh, so anyway, I, I sort of freed myself up that way, but I still wasn't happy at work, and I was on the ABA as it was, board. We were about to interview to hire a new chief executive. Joel Becker had stood down and I was upstairs at Readings in Carlton and I must have said something miserable and, you know, sort of attention-seeking or something. And two, two women who I work with, very smart women, said, what are you doing? That's your job. You should be applying for that job you should do it you'd be amazing at it and I was like oh stop it this is the most ridiculous conversation you know I'm not talking about this 
And they were um, clearly in a better headspace than me and they just persisted and said, really, think about it. This is, you're being ridiculous. Anyway, within 30 minutes, I came out of my office and said, you know, you guys are right. I am being ridiculous and I'm sorry I was being ridiculous. I will write to the board and see if they will accept a late application. Uh, I sent an email off saying this may be inappropriate. I know you've closed off any applications. Uh, I've just had this conversation at work. Would you accept a late application? And the phone rang within about 10 seconds. Three of the board members rang to say, we think this is fantastic, but we have to go and check that this is appropriate. So I said, OK, just get back to me. Then they did get back to me in the end and said, you know, we've been through the, the rules. We can't. Uh, there was a corporate lawyer on the board at the time, not the one we have on the board presently, um, a, a guy named Tim White, ex-corporate lawyer, I should say, who runs Books for Cooks. And he said, I'm satisfied that this is OK. So I, you know, I didn't have a CV. I'd been at readings for 14 years. So I had about a day to get an application together, a cover letter and do the whole thing. I did two interviews and I got the job. For the benefit of the listeners who are not members uh, or, or not on the membership of the um, Australian Booksellings Association, currently known as Book People, I was a member, not on the board at the time, when Robbie came into the picture. And I have to say, I've not seen an organisation change its focus and become so relevant to its membership since Robbie's taken over. And I'm not just saying that because uh, Robbie's sitting in front of me, but honestly, I was a member of the ABA. I was a member of the Leading Age um, book buying group. And ABA was just something I did because, you know, to tick a box. I, I, you, you just had to have representative at Canberra or whatever it is. But I had no idea what ABA really did as a member. But then, you know, Robbie came along and suddenly all these new initiatives came up and it really made me as a member rethink how best to use my membership. I'll get Robbie to explain the um, big ticket initiatives that he's implemented. But not only that, it's, it's a much more focused team. How large is your team now, Robbie? There are six of them. So we've got, we've got people working on a whole bunch of different things at all times now. I want to be careful and state that there's, I don't want to talk about judging the old ABA and the performance of predecessors. I wasn't happy with what the association was doing, so I presented a plan. For context, working at readings, I used to say to Mark, why don't we set up our own buying group? That would be great. And Mark would say, oh, you just want to run it, don't you? And I was like, well, yeah, that would be a great job. Why don't we do it and not, not use a third-party corporation? Let's set something up. I think booksellers would be interested. We, it never happened, but it was something that I'd been talking about, I reckon, for eight years, perhaps, before I got the job. And I also had proposed it along with another board member at, at a board meeting, and tumbleweeds flowed past and... No one was interested at all and it wasn't... It's a lot of work. It was You were thinking out of the box because the ABA as an association was not a buying group. Uh, that's the big shift in focus. And as soon as you become a buying group for a lot of um, booksellers, it does make you very relevant. So it, it was a huge shift. And I can understand because it took me a while to understand why ABA was you know, coming into a, a different territory for it altogether. It was quite a risky one. It appeared to me at the time as well. It was, though we were not in great financial shape, so I, the task was, you know, multifold. But I think the buying group was key. And, you know, you make your luck, I was talking about earlier, and circumstances, you know, align just because you're open to them. So Galina Marinov, who was running the books division at Leading Edge, and who I really liked and got along well with, uh, was unceremoniously dumped by that organisation, and unbeknownst to her that, that it was coming. Uh, they also sacked their chief executive, who I had met with when I first got the job, and we'd agreed we would do everything in our power to try and collaborate, because collaboration is always better. Uh, so he's gone, Galena's gone. I uh, I just thought, well, I, I'm taking this as far as I can go now. And the buying group was going to be started, but I flew to Sydney, met with Galena. 
think. But I said, I, I don't have a job for you, but I'm going to create something. And if you want to join me and build something from the ground up that you know how to do, I, I will make a job for you. So that was the risk, really. I took on a staff member that we didn't have money to employ. Look, it worked out well. Indeed. Not only her expertise, but Galena, you know, had a loyalty with booksellers on the other side as well, which when she moved across, made us all open our eyes. It, it Again, at the end of the day, it always comes down to connections and people and humans and who you trust and who you don't trust. And, uh, you know, getting it's Galena a was a big industry. plus. It's a relationship industry, yes, yes, as you said before. Yes, so, I mean, when I hired Galena, I got emails from, I mean, I think Martin was in Germany sending me a note saying, good move, hiring Galena. You know, lots of people were very happy I did it. But it didn't translate into immediate success. We had 22 bookshops join us at the start, and it was a grind. You know, sometimes you've just got to believe, don't you? I knew that it was a good thing, and I knew that we could take any fees that we had to charge because you have to pay for everything and channel them back into the industry and I thought it was just a, it was a sort of a no-brainer, but it, it took quite a while. I think booksellers are pretty um, entrenched, aren't we? Set in our ways. It, it takes a while to change habits. Yes, I don't want to offend anyone, but I think for a progressive lot who probably lean to the left, booksellers are very conservative. And that's not a criticism, you know, it's just a, you're small business people, I suppose, and some of it is the hard-headed reality. What I got questions about, what if we come over to you and Leading Edge go away and you collapse and then we're left with nothing? And that, I hadn't even considered the possibility of that. So how many, um, how, you started with 22 who signed up, how many have we got now? I think two more are coming on, so about 152, something like that. Though a couple of bookshops in Sydney have closed, sadly, Oscar and Friends, which is very sad, but that's that's quite rare. I mean, it's a very stable industry. That's one thing, there's, there's this narrative out in the world that bookshops are dying and it's all gloom and doom, but that's their big corporate mistakes, like terrible mistakes. The Borders uh, Red Group, catastrophe it was it was a private equity failure uh, and a failure of the imagination to realize that they were supposed to sell books and not hand lotion and barbecues you know that was just absurd independent book selling is very stable and when you look at our sales at a macro level at a you know nielsen you, you can tell exactly what the industry is going to do year from year so I, I think there's this constant state of fear because you're small business people and it's it's hard but as, if you take us all together as a group, we're very solid. Robbie, in very simple terms, tell our listeners the benefits of joining a book buying group, whether it be Leading Edge or whether it be Booksellers' Choice. Any buying group is about scale and heft. So we talked about margins early and a small bookshop can be given a margin, a base rate of as little as 35%. But with the, the size of our buying group now, on new releases, get your gross margin up to 50%, basically. There are some stipulations. You, there's a base extra discount in the group. And then if you buy certain quantities, you get more di discount on top of that. To make it clear to someone that's you know, never thought about this, I mean, it's, it, it's hugely important to small bookshops. And thankfully, large booksellers who have their own market power such as a Harry Hartog or a Readings they think what we're doing is important and they join too so that's that's really important it's not so much for them although they derive a lot of benefit mainly in saving them time and having to negotiate for lots of separate titles but for small booksellers it's leading edge was onto a, a good thing so it's very good business so it's twofold. The hardcore fold of it is obviously you get better margins. It can go up from 35% or 40% uh, up to 50%, sometimes 52% if you're buying a larger bulk. Sometimes it's just a plus 5%, whatever your base rate is, it's a plus 5%. And the second thing which people, I think, tend to forget is that a lot of homework is also done for you in terms of choosing the books. So in fact, both buying groups, Leading Edge, as well as... Um, the bookseller's choice, which is owned by book people, 
will go through what the books are and they'll pick what they think will be good books for independent bookshops. And those are the ones they negotiate with. So a lot of homework's done for you if you're, you know, you haven't got time to go through the entire offerings of the publishers. That's a really important point, actually, uh, because when you first start as a bookseller and you see a Penguin Random House offer, not not the book people offer, the, the broad selling sheets. It's overwhelming. It's a book. It's hard to understand. So you need a sales rep to explain to you what is right for your market. And hopefully they're a good sales rep. And shout out to David Yates at Penguin. I love you. Michelle Benson. I worked with both of them and they are excellent. You are right. But with the collating of the, of the buying group stuff, I mean, for someone coming into the industry, a couple of new booksellers, I've said, to be honest, go through all our offers and order from that almost exclusively as your new releases. And I have one member who has told me they they buy only on margin. This sounds counterintuitive and you think, oh no, I, lo- I love books so much, I have to have what I love. But this is a, I won't say who it is, but it's a thriving bookshop. It doesn't seem poorly stocked, doesn't seem in any way anything but an excellently run business. There's the other end of the spectrum where a good friend of mine who has a small bookshop in the inner north buys what he thinks is interesting and doesn't care about trends or Nielsen stats or anything. So this, it gives you the opportunity to be really profitable, I think. And we do charge a subscription fee monthly because, you know, you need to pay people and it's a lot of work, as you say. So the way we do it is the publishers present to us the account managers in the same way that reps come and present to you the bookseller. So we get it from the key accounts manager and we are considered now a key account. And according to some, we are bigger than Dimex. For some, we are bigger than Booktopia. So if we learn how to harness that size and heft, I think we can do a lot more with it. But the first thing was to get a group that worked, that made sense, that publishers wanted to invest in. And and that's where we've got to. So we're in a good place, I think, but with a lot of work to do. Fantastic conversation, as I thought it would be, Robbie. No worries, but it was a pleasure talking to you as always. And um, see you soon. Thank you. that was the booksellers podcast we hope you learned as much as we did from that conversation with robbie egan chief executive of book people if you are wanting some way to show your enjoyment of the podcast we would really appreciate it if you consider donating to the indigenous literacy foundation our fundraising page is fundraising.ilf.org.au forward slash the booksellers podcast you can find us on instagram at the booksellers podcast music is by cameron dusting who is also on instagram at cam dusting